Good morning. Nice songs of worship, aren't they? Thank you for our music team here who leads us in worship and the, uh, just the talent that they have and the way we can just join together in song. Let's pray before we go into God's word. Father, we thank you for the time of worship. We thank you for Kelly and Alyssa and how they have devoted their lives to try to help save these little girls. And we pray great blessing upon their ministry. And Father, now we pray that you would open our eyes to your scriptures, to the truths in your word, that we may know you better and obey you more and have greater understanding as to our Christian faith and Jesus Christ and the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience where you yourself or someone close to you made a visit to the doctor for one matter or another, maybe even for a regular visit, a regular checkup, but the news the doctor ended up giving you or that your loved one turned out to be totally unexpected, perhaps even, even a shocking diagnosis. Maybe you've been around something like that, an instance like that with somebody close to you. So you might be able to relate to that type of feeling, just the shock of a, a serious, serious diagnosis when you weren't expecting it at all. Well, <clears throat> this morning we're going to look at a shocking diagnosis that was given to a church back in the first century. And it was completely unexpected. But that same type of thing can happen today. And our letter today that we're going to look at in the book of Revelation in chapter 3 will help us prevent this shocking diagnosis from coming to us or blindsiding us. So we're going to be in the New Testament book of Revelation. We're reading the letters that Jesus had the Apostle John send to uh, seven first century churches, churches in ancient Asia Minor. And the one we're going to be looking at this morning in the beginning of chapter 3 was written to the first century church in Sardis. Those churches kind of made a, a route that the mail went by. <clears throat> so it was a good way to get these letters out to the different uh, cities. Sardis was one of the most glorious cities in ancient Asia Minor. It was a city known for its wealth and fame. It became the capital of the wealthy and powerful kingdom of Lydia during Lydia's time. Sardis was the home of many pagan cults. And it also had a large, powerful Jewish community. But... We don't have a lot of record of them being persecuted by the Jewish community or, or others. And that may be a significant factor in what we're going to be reading about in this letter to them. So I want to begin with the first part of Revelation chapter 3 and the first part of verse 1. Was that me? <laughs> okay. 
Here's the first part of verse 1 in chapter 3. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You know, in each letter, Jesus identifies himself with some uh, words of description that talks about him. And, and, and sometimes he uses some of the same words of description. Other times it's completely different. But it has to do with the letter he's going to send them and the thing he's going to ask them to do or tell them to do. So he's identifying himself as the one holding the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now the seven spirits of God refer really to the Holy Spirit. And it sometimes is translated the sevenfold spirit of God. The number seven is a number that represents fullness, completeness. It's an exalting phrase. And it refers to the abundant power of the Holy Spirit. The abundant power of God that's given to us, given to the church, given to individuals through the Holy Spirit of God. And the importance of this in this letter as Jesus is talking about, is that Jesus holds in his hand the abundant power of God that is theirs for the taking. And that's true for us today, too, isn't it? I mean, we have the Spirit of God and the abundant power in the Spirit of God, but <clears throat> it's often different. The power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God is often different than what we think normally of just having power. Sometimes we think of power as authority. We think of power as doing anything we want. But to have the power of God comes out a lot different sometimes. It's true power, but it's heavenly power. And we'll see about that as we go through the letter. But we have that power source indwelling us in the Holy Spirit. And Christ is the one who is responsible because he's holding the, the sevenfold spirit of God in his hand. So what he's talking about is he is Lord over the church. Christ is Lord over the church. And he says he also holds the seven stars. Now the seven stars, we were told, are the angels of the seven churches. And so... They may be heavenly angels that are some sort of <clears throat> uh, angel that's there to protect the church or a human messenger that they're calling angels because the word angel means messenger. But here's the thing. Christ is holding the seven stars, which are the angels of the churches, and he's holding the sevenfold spirit of God. Those are in his hand. So what it's saying there is that Christ is the ultimate authority over the church. The Father has given him full authority. It is his body on earth. The church is his body. He is the head. That says authority also. He paid the redemption price for our salvation. The church only exists because Christ agreed to come down become a human being, sacrifice himself on the cross, and pay the, the uh, payment for our sin. His sacrificial death paid for our sins. So God has granted him 
and he has earned to be our commander. He is the authority of the church, the church on earth that spreads across the world. He is the one who bought it with his blood, and now he commandeers it. Whatever he tells us, then, we are supposed to do. Isn't that right? If he is the head of the church. And I think that's in our society today. I think we're kind of getting away from that. Just our society as whole. And then it kind of filters into the church a little bit. I think I see people today that come to the Bible and they say they like certain parts, but they don't like other parts. And so they just choose to just not pay attention to the other parts. But that puts them as the authority, right? Instead of Christ as the authority, because this book has come from the Holy Spirit, and Jesus says this is the word of God. So I I think we're losing that sense, and you know, as our nation has gotten further and further away from God, you know, back decades ago, people revered God, even when they weren't Christians. They kind of revered God, and they revered the good book. That We've moved away from that. And I think that's really hurt our society and even our churches because now sometimes people will grow up and they say, I don't believe it anymore. Or I don't choose to do that. And you know, um, when we talk about you know, following Jesus' command, and we talk about him being the head of the church. It's just this, this matter of who are we going to obey? Are we going to obey the word of God? Are we going to treat Christ as if he is the commander? Or are we going to just, you know, do our own thing? So what does Jesus, the commander of the church, have for this church in Sardis? Well, here comes the shocking diagnosis. I want you to look at the rest of verse 1. He says, I know your deeds. That also uh, lends to his authority over the church because he kind of knows all that's going on. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow, quite a difference between those two, isn't there? Alive and dead. He's not mincing any words. And I'm sure that's not the diagnosis that they wanted to hear or we would want to hear. And notice the strong language. He doesn't say, you are sick. You are weak. You have a fever. He says... You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And the amazing part is that they have this reputation of being an alive church. So the reputation doesn't even come close to their true spiritual condition. And that's why I call it a shocking diagnosis. Uh, You probably, like I said at the beginning, you probably know someone who We're going into the doctor, and boom, they got three weeks to live. This is kind of what Jesus is saying. 
And you know, if you, <clears throat> if you look at a lot of church names today, uh, there's some pretty wild ones that are out there. And they're just trying to promote an image with their name, of course. And it's like that there are churches that really want to promote an idea or a brand of excitement and wonder. And I think what they're trying to say is, this isn't the church your parents grew up in or your grandparents grew up in. This church rocks. I kind of think that's what they're doing, some of them. Well, the Sardis church had a reputation of being alive, but Jesus renamed it dead. And it could be that once they were alive, and then they just kind of drifted off, and they, they had earned that reputation at one time, but it may be that they had the outward appearance of being alive, and I'm sure that's, that was true either way. They had the outward appearance of being alive, but the inner reality was that they were spiritually dead. And so I was asking myself as I was looking at this, in what ways can a church be thought of as alive, either by the people in the church or maybe the community that it's in, what ways can a church be thought of as alive? And then Jesus comes in and gives it a rating of dead. You know, one interesting note here is that just outside the city of Sardis was this well-known cemetery. And it had the graves of long dead kings. So this well-known graveyard had the, had the graves of past powerful kings <clears throat> that were now dead and powerless. So some Bible scholars think that Jesus may be referring, because they would understand that, saying that this church resembles that graveyard full of people whose greatness and effective lives were now in the past and no longer effective. So this is the church going to be like, <clears throat> or is this church going to be like the graveyard just outside their city? Or are they going to take advantage of the sevenfold spirit of God that can make them full of true spiritual life? And what is that? What is that true spiritual life if people can't even identify it? So here's the diagnosis. This church has a reputation of being alive but has been declared by Jesus as being dead. So what makes a church alive or dead? And again, how can a church be thought of as alive by the people in it or the community around it, yet actually be declared dead by Jesus Christ, the head of the church? Well, look at verse 2. This gives us more of a clue. He says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. <clears throat> Wake up. It sounds as though the church has been lulled to sleep. It sounds as though the church has grown spiritually dull. They can't discern anymore because they just lost their sharpness. And he says their works or their deeds have been judged by God to be incomplete, 
unfinished. It sounds like they've lost their zeal, or they've lost their focus, or they've lost their way. They've been sidetracked. And what they started out to do, they're not doing anymore. And, you know, another interesting point here is that the word for wake up is the word for keeping watch. So he's saying to them, be watchful. It's like a guard in the guard tower. And then Sardis was on this this Acropolis, had this Acropolis where guards were up and they were supposed to watch out for people trying to come in and attack them. And it happened two times in Sardis history that they suffered defeat when they weren't watching and somebody climbed up that mountain top, that mountainside and was able to get into the kingdom and defeated the city. And so it just fit real well with this, this passage of what Jesus was saying to this church. Jesus is saying, keep watch. Guards, keep your eyes open. Wake up to your guard duty. And he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, that statement kind of explains the earlier one. He says that they were dead, but it looks like here they still have a chance. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I think he was saying, you are at the doorstep of death. And so he says, there is a chance. If you wake up, if you strengthen what remains, what little that remains, you still have a chance. But in order to get back on track, they will have to snap out of their drowsiness, their spiritual lethargy. And first they will have to face up to the fact that their true spiritual condition is is not good at all. They've lost their focus. And whatever it is that has taken their zeal for, for Christ away, they have to face up to that and they have to deal with it. They have to acknowledge it and they have to turn back. They have to repent. They have to go before God and repent for their sins and turn back to the way he wants them to go. Jesus says, strengthen what is about to die. He's trying to pull them back from death's door. And then in verse 3, he tells them how to get back to the right way. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you, not, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at and you will not know at what time I will come to you. <clears throat> so Jesus has the solution here. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. He wants them to remember when the gospel message came into their city. And we heard, they heard that gospel message for the first time. And you know... In those days and, 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 and all other days too, there's this, in some places there's this fear of God. And there's a fear because you don't know, am I good enough? Am I going to make it? Uh, I've done some wicked things. Well, I haven't done as much as him, 
but I've done wicked things. Am I going to make it? What does it take to get to heaven? And that's what everybody thinks is, what does it take to get to heaven? And the gospel message comes in, and he says it's already been paid. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, paid the penalty for your sins. And if you come to him and you become one with Christ, you will, you will be able to go to heaven if you repent. And so when that message came to them, it opened their eyes to the true God. It opened their eyes to a God who truly loved them and made a way for them to live with him forever. And they learned of Christ's sacrifice to pay for their sins. How their hearts were changed and they found a love they had never known before. <clears throat> I don't know how true this is of anyone here or some here, but when you came to Christ, you know, some of you came at a very young age, but if you were a little older, when you came to Christ, did you feel like you could really love then that you couldn't love before? I mean, did you, did you feel like, I know a whole new level of love? And that's the love of God, isn't it? And you knew a whole new level of where you could forgive and you knew a whole new level where you could just give people grace. And that's what they entered into because they were pagans growing up. And they were scared of the gods that they were worshiping. And their hearts were changed. And they found a love they'd never found before. They'd never known before. And they learned to love one another with the love they received from God. And so he says, remember what you received, remember what you heard, grasp on to it, cling to it, hold tight to it, repent, and go back to where you were. And he says, and if they don't, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. <clears throat> now, when he says come like a thief, it sounds kind of funny for Jesus to be doing something like a thief, doesn't it? But he's talking about you know, a thief comes at the most surprising moment because he you know, comes in the dark, comes when people are gone, all that kind of stuff. So Christ says he's talking about coming and they won't be prepared for it. If they don't repent, if they don't cling to what they learned before, if they don't come back to what they learned, he's going to come at a time that they will not know and it's not going to be pleasant. <clears throat> And, you know, when you talk about people forgetting what it was that brought them salvation and people forgetting what it was to come to Christ and have that forgiveness of sins and then moving off from that, moving off. You know, it's happened to churches and whole denominations who drifted off to sleep. Competition gets, gets stiff around here, I think. <laughs> we love babies, though, don't we? <laughs> it's happened to churches and whole denominations. You know, they've drifted off to sleep. They forgot what it was when they came to Christ. 
how much, how needy they were. They've forgotten. They've, you know, I can attest to that. When, when I came to Christ, it didn't take long before I was looking down on others who were just like me, thinking, how could they do that? And you kind of forget where you came from. That's how we have to remember where we came from. And some of these churches and some of these even denominations, they stop believing in the Word of God. They start becoming the authority over the Word of God. They start becoming the authority over their churches instead of Jesus Christ. And they start leaving the truths of God. They start uh, losing their reverence for God. And they're not letting Jesus be the head of the church. Whole denominations have done this over the centuries, haven't they? Churches that used to spread the gospel <clears throat> and bring people to Christ and have conferences where people get saved, and now they don't even believe the, the scriptures anymore. And they don't believe in the gospel. And we see so many people today, you know, um, where they call it deconstructing their faith. And so that means they're becoming the authority over the Bible. They're becoming the authority over God's salvation. And Christ says, come back to the place you were when you first got saved. He says, if you don't, I will come like a thief. And what he's going to do is he's going to remove the lampstand. Because that's what he said in another letter. But now we have some good news. There's good news because there are some in Sardis who haven't gone all that way, all that have left the path as far. Look with me at verse 4. It says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Now this... When he talks about a few who haven't soiled their clothes and they're the ones who have stayed with him, it kind of gives us a clue as to what the others did who have distanced themselves from God. There are a few that haven't soiled their clothes. Soil, soiling clothes might be different, you know, when you, <clears throat> when you think of raising little kids and having babies. That, that, we're not talking about that kind of soiling, really. We're talking about uh, when they used to offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. They weren't supposed to come unless their clothes, the, the, their robes or everything were washed clean. <clears throat> and it was, uh, it was an insult to the gods if they came in soiled clothes and dirty clothes that haven't been washed. So Jesus is saying, a few people in Sardis have not soiled their clothes. And what he's referring to is, those who were drifting away from Christ, the ones who were soiling their clothes, were probably getting involved in activities or lifestyles that made them unclean spiritually. So he's using their, their robes or clothes as a, as a spiritual measure. It could be sacrificing to idols back then. It could be acts of immorality that Jesus was talking about. Jesus is saying there were few in the church who had kept their garments clean. They did not engage in immoral acts. 
So today, you know, we can engage and we can dirty our garments oftentimes by sexual sin, by promiscuity, by pornography, by things we choose to watch or read or the way we use the internet. And we can defile ourselves also by language, can't we? The language we use. We can defile ourselves by giving in to hatefulness or selfishness or stealing or lying by being dragged into certain behaviors by gossip, by spreading lies, by being dragged into behaviors of those who we are around at school or work. Those are clothes soiling activities, aren't they? And whatever the Sardis Christians were doing, whatever thing they were having trouble with, whatever problems they were getting into, it was distancing them from God. And Jesus says they were at death's doorstep. And it was going to take some serious repentance to get them back on track. And they had really let down their guard. They had grown very lax in their faith. And Jesus said he was about to visit them like a thief when they, when they least expected it. But then he says in verse 4 here that there's a few people who had not soiled their clothes. And they will walk with Jesus in white because they're worthy. And maybe some of you heard about the old time, first century, and around that time, Roman triumphal processions when they would win a war, win a big battle, and they would, the, the king would march through the streets and the, the soldiers would march behind and people would march behind them and they would wear white because it was the victory clothing. And Jesus is talking about walking dressed in white, for they are worthy. This is after he returns to defeat. <clears throat> and what Jesus is referring to is when he returns, you know, to take possession of the earth, he will have this large battle, and there will be the armies of the world gathered to try to stop him from taking back his earth. And he's going to slaughter them. And after he returns to these armies, he will, all the faithful will join him in his victory procession. And so white is the, is the sign of victory, but it also signifies purity, holiness, and glory. And so these are the few who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. And then look what happens to the one who keeps his faith or her faith in Christ. Verse 5, the one who is victorious, like them, like the ones dressed in white, will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. The victorious one is the one who keeps their faith in Christ. As Satan and the world tries to draw us out away from Christ, we stay strong in Christ. And the book of life, and it comes from, you know, what was happening in the society and in the churches. The basic meaning is, is about a book where you put names in who all belong to that, that city. 
So names were entered into the book, and if that person ever did something that got them cast out, they would scratch the name out of the book. And then it came to refer to a book in heaven, a book of life, where all the redeemed names were entered into it. So the person who is victorious, Jesus says, they will walk with him in white, and I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. And not only that, but he will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. So that person is safe in Christ's hands, who is victorious by staying with Christ. And then he will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Now, I don't know how that is actually going to happen, because there's going to be so many people, but there's going to be some kind of, you know, some kind of celebration or acknowledgement that Jesus is going to acknowledge each of us to his Father. This is one of mine. This is one who was victorious. This is one who stayed with us. This is, this is a true believer in us. And it's going to be some amazing uh, event that happens, you know, as we stand before God at the end. So, we do want to be one of the few who do not soil our clothes, don't we? We do want to walk with Christ in his triumphal procession, dressed in white. And we do want to make certain our name is absolutely solid in the Lamb's book of life. And then Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pay attention. This is what we say to you. This is how it all ends up good for you. Hanging on to Christ as the world tries to tip you away. Hanging on to Christ. Having the power of the Spirit, which doesn't mean that you're going to <clears throat> you know, conquer others. But it means that you're going to be true to Christ and follow him and whatever that takes, whatever cost it is. And then we will win in the end with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and just all the different ways that you teach us about yourself, your son, the church, what holiness is through all kinds of different stories and examples and lessons. And so, Father, we just uh, pray that as we look at these churches, that we can learn from them and our hearts would be open to receive the message from them. And then, Lord, that we would be faithful and you would strengthen us and help us to follow you in, in everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.